never ready, but I'll pretend to be. Okay, so I have the thumb of authority, and you're still operational, Super Dave? Supper Dave, sorry. Excuse me. Okay, so we'll get going here. Uh, I'll take these off because I'm going to have to do some reading. <sighs> we will be back on April the 2nd, spring schedule. You might note that the spring schedule seems a lot like the winter schedule, which seems a lot like the summer schedule, which seems a lot like the, like the fall schedule. And all of that is true. Okay, March the 19th, 2023, lecture discover, discussion, sorry, excuse me, number 194 on the book of Joel, Daniel, Revelation, Job, Genesis 1, Genesis 2, Genesis 15. Now, we could proceed in many directions today. As usual, the debris field that I have assembled, it's greatly assembled now. It's spread all over the place. I've got a big mess, as I always do, and that's occurred over the recent months. And I have been approached consistently, mostly by the vast Internet audience, to address specific controversial theological issues. And if you are aware, if you've been following along at all, as you are aware, that's how we found ourselves in this current quagmire that is superdeterminism versus transitory temporal salvation, often referred to as absolute predestinational Calvinism, predestinational Calvinism, in contrast or conflict with Arminianism. And you may recall, and I'm kind of regurgitating this for a reason today, but you may recall that both of those devolve into hopelessness. And by that I mean I submit that the Arminian position that teaches salvation is fragile, and that's what they do. They say it's fragile, and therefore they say that you are always subject to being lost and, and condemned to, uh, to the lake of fire. And, and, uh, and if this were true, then God's plan of salvation is doomed. You've heard me say that, I hope, many, many times. Because all of us would have their salvation either taken or discarded or lost or Abandoned intentionally. We, none of us would do it. We all are, are, are in a position where so, so weak that there's no possibility we could hold on to our own salvation. And, and I have many times, in other words, none would be saved by God's plan of salvation. Let me repeat that as much as I can. And that's, that's the Arminian uh, element that, that's how it devolves. Now, some of the Arminians, and I've met many of them, they'll protest that they're ne- they never waver. In fact, they will say that they're mostly sinless. Their sins are sins of omission, not sins of commission. You hear that many, many times, especially from pastors that say that. And, uh, and uh, they, they will say that never is their salvation at risk, at risk but yours is. Uh, and that they are more holy than you. And I just say, my response to all those kind of guys, or mostly guys, some women, just stop it. It's a narcissistic boast. Uh, it's No one is fooled by your self-aggrandizement. We know you're lying. Quit pretending that you're not. Quit insisting that you're not lying. We know that you are. All we have to do is follow you around with an iPhone for a couple of hours, and we're going to prove it. And... Uh, Note that this is not the definition of coming to the Lord with humility, James 4.10, 1 Peter 5.5. You're starting to run around telling people how, how sinless you are. That is not humility. I think that's pretty obvious. I hope that you'll recognize that. And now we go to the unconditional Calvinistic predestination procedure, and it fares no better than the Arminian salvation, but it's transitory, that it's fragile, that it can be easily lost. And it declares that billions and billions of human beings uh, have no possibility of being saved by the one whose very name means salvation, which should have been a clue from the beginning. But that's their position. But it's never a clue to those who teach this particular uh, hopelessness. And I, I have called both of these positions to be doctrinal catastrophes, something that I consider to be an appropriate assessment. Both violate Psalm 36, 5 through 7, which gives us a description of God. Just lays it out, bang, 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 bang. Anyway, today I'm going to blast away at Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. It's a passage uh, that finds itself to be consistently weaponized by the doctrinal catastrophists. Uh, Ephesians 1, 3 through 14 does not mean what they think it means. And you need to know that. It does not mean what they say it means. 
But because I have been endowed with the highest and most holy of the dry erase makers and its complement, the consecrated platinum model reversible dry erase board, I will, I shall today for a short time, and short being a relative term, I'm going to exercise the power vested in me to pronounce, actually to choose an intrinsically uh, and, and uh, intrinsically related subject to Ephesians uh, 1, 13 through 14. And, and therefore, it's going to be related to the Calvinist Armenian piece of muck that we have to go wade through here. So, and that subject, of course, is what? Yes, you're absolutely right. That subject is Mond wins again. Now, I did not go very far with Mond wins again last time we were together, or I was, together, I was here. Uh, but I'm going to go a little bit further with it, and I hope you'll understand why it's so important to the church. This is an extraordinary fissure, if you will, in, in the physics community that Mond has defeated a lot of uh, traditional views, traditional by, I mean, uh, those of the last 50 years. Mond, of course, to repeat this, is modified Newtonian dynamics. And it is in direct opposition to the general theory of relativity. So if you want to think of it this way, it's Isaac Newton versus Albert Einstein. Uh, and note right now, when I've announced that I'm going to do Mound, Mond, sorry, that the uh, note for the record, the vast Internet audience just simultaneously released a synchronized groan, didn't they? We all heard it even in Alaska. It hit about 2.5 on a Richter scale, I would say. They are absolutely miserable. But uh, I can't repeat enough how important this element is to the church to be able to be literate in it. Don't ignore it. It's critical because your children are at stake here. Be able to defeat these kinds of things. Again, the two positions. So we have Calvinism and Arminianism, and now we have Newton versus Einstein, and that's the beginning of the relationship. One position of of the definition ultimately of gravity, one position conforms. It's in an agreement with Hebrews 1.3 and Colossians 1.15 through 18. And the other one, of course, as you know, believes there is no free will. So the Einstein position says there's no free will. The Mond, the Mond position says there is. And obviously I have a favorite. Let the audience demonstrate the shocked face. that uh, I have a favorite here. I have a horse in the fight, a dog in the race, whichever one you prefer, piece of cake. Easy as pie. Anyway, Isaac saw gravity as a force. Albert, as you know, proposed that gravity was not a force, but instead is best defined as a curvature in the space-time continuum. A distortion, if you will, resulting from the inequalities of mass distribution. What I'm trying to say there is both of these guys... Isaac and Albert recognize there's a ratio significance of larger mass objects and their proportional gravitational impact. In other words, I have to do this occasionally. Bigger things demonstrate more gravitational potential. But to repeat the key element, let me get it in there as hard as I can. Isaac said gravity is a force. And again, Isaac Newton was a religious man. He was somebody that believed his uh, exposition on the book of Revelation was his greatest work in his entire life. And he's extraordinary. He believed that gravity is a force. Albert, not a force. Isaac's gravity is a force theory. And it has been astonishingly accurate mathematically since he proposed it. We Engineers use Isaac Newton. Astronomers use Albert Einstein. And everyone was content with what Isaac's positions were, what his laws, if you wish to say, that he revealed what they, what they were doing. And by everyone, I mean all the math, mathematicians and astronomers, which, of course, the mathematicians and the astronomers are the very weird among us. However, in 1859, a mathematician astronomer, obviously I won't give you his name, you can look him up, obviously a combination that you cannot expect anything great out of, but 
uh, produce anything normal, at least. He, this, this astronomer mathematician, 1859, he was perplexed by the slow procession of the planet Mercury as it orbited the, or, or the sun. Sorry. Mercury has a perturbated orbit. What that means is it's got an eccentric, it's an eccentricity. It has a chaotic orbit. It's not normal. It, something's wrong. And it was thought that Newtonian classical gravitational precepts could not explain the advance of Mercury's perihelion. What is a perihelion? That is when the body of Mercury, for example, is the closest possible position in its orbit to the sun. So the closest position in its, in its orbit is called the perihelion. And that's, again, that's astronomers speak for the point at which Mercury is closest to the sun as opposed to the aphelion, which is the furthest position. We, we know all about the closest position, the perihelion of the Earth and the aphelion of the Earth when we live in Alaska. And we get it really beat into us. Okay, is anyone still awake? I was going to say anyone, McFly, anyone still awake? Okay, to solve this perturbation issue, they, the guys that tried to solve this, they began with this unseen planet theory because there had to be some other gravitational impact on Mercury. Mercury would go around and it wouldn't function right. It would do all kinds of strange things. So they said there has to be an unseen planet. And what did they name that planet? Everybody who watches Star Trek knows. What did they name the planet? That's right. They named it Vulcan. So we have Spock. This is where Spock and Vulcan came from. In case you thought there was a real Spock or a real Vulcan. And there are a lot of people that think there are, I, I tell you what. And the, the, they, the ones that wanted to figure this out, they proposed that there was again this mass, an undiscovered mass that was influencing Mercury's orbital path, causing disturbances, and eventually they knew that this was going to destabilize Mercury. Mercury was not going to last much longer in this orbital system. It's going to fail. And that was a big concern. They knew that, that a Mercury would eventually collide with the sun, or at least that was their proposition. The perihelion would be zero, in other words, because it would slam into the sun. Now, to shorten this topic before the audience, they're already writhing in agony. But some of them will pass out and drool all over themselves, so to shorten this a bit. A perihelion that advances to absolute zero, of course, a collision with the sun, that's an imminent threat because what will happen to the rest of the solar system? If you guess that that's, we removed a gravitational element to it, well, then that upsets all kinds of gravitational forces, doesn't it? And so consequences would abound. There was predictions that we would have planetary collisions. and We have a great disaster. So this was something that they were anxious to figure out what was going on. Is Mercury stable or not? So to speed along again, eventually the matter was to redefine gravitational phenomena. That was their solution. They said, well, Newtonian classical gravitational theory is not true because we can't explain this uh, precession of Mercury. And so they redefined gravitational uh, phenomena. They, they left Isaac Newton's force position to Einstein's not a force position. That's where we are today, which I propose, by the way... was intentional. It was an embracement, if you wish, of the theological concerns that they had. So in other words, they saw a theological advantage to saying Einstein, not a force, over Newton, force. And, and of course, the no free will side was absolutely thrilled with this and they, they remained thrilled with their position. All you have to do is, and if you're weird, and I am, uh, how do I put it? I'm definitely not uh, stabilized because I will go onto the internet and read all of the comments that are written on whatever particular physics astronomy issue, theoretical physics or theoretical astronomy, whichever one happens to be on the internet du jour, and I'll read every single comment, and there are pages and pages of them, so that makes me very odd, I agree. But I'm anxious to know if anybody is beginning to say, wait a minute. I keep searching for them. 
So that's just how I behave, much to the dismay of everyone who knows me. Anyway, included in this redefinition of gravity, we have a redefinition of gravity. Now we have to see, does it fit the, uh, does it fit the, <coughs> the reasonably established information that we have with respect to how the universe is functioning? And so this comes eventually to the dark matter provision because the universe is not doing what they thought it would do. So we have to have some other gravity. It's just like Vulcan. It's we're back to Spock. So they invent something, dark gravity, or as I am predisposed to call dark matter. I'm sorry, I said dark gravity. I meant dark matter. So they have to have dark matter because they need a gravitational influence to, to explain things. And what I call dark matter is that nobody has any idea if it's true, cut from whole cloth. Completely unverifiable, make-believe, craptastic fantasy. That's what I think it is. Can I say craptastic? I think I can. Well, it's my favorite word when it comes to this. And make no mistake, even though there is no evidence of dark matter, there is no evidence of dark matter. Nobody, the astronomers love their dark matter, even though no one has ever seen it and no one can ever define it, but they just say we got it. Because we need it. It is a fudge factor. I've said that for many, many years. Again, it's exactly the same procedure as there's a planet Vulcan and there's a, a Leonard Nimoy who's Spock. Okay? And the astronomers, again, they just love their dark matter and they will, with all straight faces, declare that dark matter makes up 85% of the universe. Though no one again has ever seen it, no one can explain it. And, and to repeat, they delight in the fact that they are clinging to their no free will position. They understand, don't, don't disregard this. They understand that if they concede free will, what they're doing. So they don't want there to be free will because they have a particle-based structure and that particle-based structure is basically an atheistic philosophy. And they know that. They're not idiots. Okay, most of them are. No, it's not. That's probably not funny. It's funny to me. But you see, the problem is more than mercury. Oops. It turns out, duh, that galaxies and galaxy clusters behave gravitationally apart from the dark matter predictions. What? We cannot make the dark matter predictions fit with what we are seeing with the Webb telescope, the Hubble telescope. They can't figure out why we're having these issues because dark matter did not fit this. Galaxies also have perturbations that are completely inconsistent with the dark matter theory. Who could have seen this coming? Ray Charles could have seen it. Anybody? Stevie Wonder. It appears that uh, astronomers have stepped upon the old galactic rake Bang, whapped, whapped them right upside the head. Galaxies have a shared characteristics at their perimeter. So when I'm talking about a galaxy, I'm not talking about the cluster of the galaxy. I'm talking about the perimeters of the galaxy. And they expand uh, millions and millions of miles, if not billions of miles, not trillions of miles. And so what's happening is at their perimeters, there is an anomaly occurring that is now being able to be discovered. And this being an unexplainable high level of rotational velocity at the extremes. If you are have a cluster and you have something at the extreme of that cluster and it is moving at an incredibly rapid speed and it's accelerating, well then how come dark matter is not impacting it? That's what's occurring. Dark matter theory cannot, will not account, explain, predict, clarify, describe, interpret these rotational velocities. Can't do it. And they say this now on the websites and on their little comments. They say, we have something wrong. And I go, yay. That's the kind of thing that gives you goosebumps. The astronomers have something wrong in the Newton and the Einstein contention. The unseen, their undefined dark matter invention concept to the surprise of no one who thinks about this stuff is useless to explain what's going on in the universe. But, we'll wait for it. What is not useless, as I said a couple of weeks ago, Mond, 
modified Newtonian dynamics absolutely did predict this astronomical observation that they are finding to be the case. It said it would happen. It predicted it back many years ago. It's the only, over 50. It is the only theory that has succeeded. Mon foresaw that gravity causes this very small, undetectable acceleration at the classical level. What do I mean that? By that, the Earth is the classical level. And so gravity causes an undetectable acceleration at the, at our level, at the Earth level. But at the galactic level, this undetectable acceleration is exposed. I like to call this the invisible is made visible. You have to have something at the galactic level and, and, ah, let's just do it. To say it differently, I thought it so I still had the market. At the, at our level, we cannot detect this acceleration that's occurring caused by gravity. It's too small for us. But at the galactic level, when you have that mount, I'm sorry, massive amount of material and the extraordinary size. Now you can see the acceleration that's going on at the extremes. So I like to call that the invisible made visible. In other words, gravity happens to be multi-layered in complexity. Oh my. Who would have thought that? Of course it is. We can't even imagine the complexity that's out here. We have no idea how complicated everything is. We're slowly, as a scientific community, flailing away and finding some of it. But all of a sudden now we have that gravity is multi-layered in complexity. It's adaptable, if you will. It's balanced. It's fine-tuned, just like we know. Hidden in gravity is this accelerative capacity that accommodates the interactions of galaxies. We don't see it here because it's not needed here. But where the galaxies are, that's when it comes into play. Somebody figured that out. I wonder how he did it. So what does this mean? Why should the church care about the design of the universe? Why should we care about it? I'm listening to pastors screaming at me right now. I don't care. They've told me that for 30 years. I get it all the time. Why is force not a force so important? Again, to repeat, it's obvious to me. The force, I'm sorry, the not force says no free will. The force says free will. That's critical. We know that. We're already in this muck, as I said, of Calvinistic superdeterminism. And it hurts people. And it hurts your, it hurts your congregation. It hurts the students that go to these religious schools. And it's damaging. And it needs to be dealt with. And now it's the time. We're in a situation, let me go talk, run it off really fast. we got Iran, China, Syria, Russia, Turkey, India, North Korea. We have a confederacy out there. Banks are f- failing again. We're leaving tangible money. We're leaving uh, paper money, if you wish. It's more of a fabric money. But we're leaving that tangibility and we're going into something that's completely, uh, it's nothing. It's digital. It can be erased and destroyed in an instant by somebody with a computer. So all of that is a predictability of the Bible. That there will be a confederacy at the end of the age of the Gentiles. There will be no money at the end of the age of the Gentiles. I know most of the kids that are listening to me do not carry money at all. They never they don't have any money. They have a card. That's all they have. They just go around with a card. And the bank tells them they have so much digital information and of course, the bank can get into their, their accounts and they can delete all that digital information and wipe them out instantly. <coughs> That's what's happened already. These banks that are collapsing, they didn't take the money out and burn it. It was all digitized. They said, all of a sudden, you don't have that. Poof, it's gone. We've taken it. And we've assigned it over here. If they even did that, who knows? So again, what does this mean? We are, If I am correct... We are at the we are fifty nine seventy seven from Adam, and I hope I'm correct for all of our sake. That's really close to six thousand years. Again, there's a two hundred and ten year mistake in the Jewish uh, accountability, if you will, 
mathematics. Okay. Why should the church care? Why is force, not force, so important? Again, to repeat that, not force has no free will. And if there's no free will, then the implications of that are very, very severe. Force, though, Newton says free will. And how is it that they say this? How is this so? Well, no free will says everything is particle. Everything is particle. Typically, gravity is considered to be a form of radiant energy, or what's called gravitational radiation. And, and you're probably familiar, if you are, with gravitational wave theory, because it's been in the news lately. They've been trying to detect gravitational waves. And that, uh, again, gravitational wave theory led to the search for gravitational waves. And gravitational wave detection is a laser interferometer gravitational wave observatory, or LIGO. And if you look up LIGO, you can find out why they believe they have found gravitational waves. Einstein thought that these cosmic collisions that occur in the galaxies were the source of gravitational waves. He, he refers to these as the cause of the ripples in space. So back to the question now. What is gravity? Is it energy? Is it a wave function? Is it an electromagnetism? Is it particle-based? Is it both particle-based and a wave form? Is it gra- is it, what about the gravitron? Remember the gravitron? Whatever happened to this? Is it radiation? What is gravity? And as everyone knows, duh, I need a category for as everyone knows. I can start it now. As everyone knows, duh, Wave functions collapse to particle functions with what? Observation. There has to be an observer. That becomes incredibly important theologically, as you know. Thus, a gravitational wave implies particle. Wave-particle dualism is a Genesis 2-7 concept. You want to know where grave... I'm sorry, where... <laughs> Excuse me. <coughs> Wave-particle dualism is first mentioned in theology and philosophy. It's Genesis 2:7. It's also explained in Ecclesiastes 12, because you see the body, the body is particle. Our body is particle. It returns to dust. Dust is particle. The form, which is First Samuel 28:1 through 3, where Samuel's form of his body comes out of paradise and speaks to Saul. So the form of the body is not particle. The body is particle, but the form is not particle. It's the spirit. Therefore, it's a wave function. If it's not particle, it has to be a wave function. Gravitational waves are invisible and considered to radiate at the speed of light. That's the predominant position. Energy is carried in the wave. So I have a gravitational wave and I have energy in that wave. Uh, Just the same as I have a tidal wave and I will have Energy contained in the tidal water, in the wave. I have sound waves, I have light waves, and the energy is contained in the wave. So there you go. Now extrapolate that to Genesis 2-7. The energy is contained in the wave. Is gravity a force attraction between masses, or is it a phenomenon produced by distortion of space-time by mass? That's the question we started with. And we should then, therefore, to answer that question, we have to do one thing. We can consult the uh, creation manual. I have a creation manual. It tells me what gravity is. It's a fantastic reference point. And I can start with Colossians 1.15. Christ is the image of the invisible God. Let me repeat that. He's the image of the invisible God. This is a triune verse, so don't think you're going to understand it. Oh, I got that. No, you don't. It's a triune verse. Immediately, we know that Genesis 1.26 is on the table. Then Elohim said, let us make Adam in our image. Christ is the image of the invisible God. Adam is a type of Christ, Romans 5.14. So naturally, he would be in the image of God. Let us make Adam in our image. In Genesis 3.22, then the Elohim said, behold, the Adam, and it's not the man, it's the Adam. He calls him the Adam. The Adam has become like one of us. And Colossians 1.15 tells us which one of the us is being referred to. Proverbs 30 verse 4. 
John 1.18, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, that is who is in the bosom of the the I'm sorry, in the bosom of the Father, he has declared. In other words, Christ has seen the Father. We haven't seen the Father, but Christ has seen the Father. It goes on to say that Christ is in the bosom of the Father. So that means Christ is in the triune Godhead. That means the Aleph Tav is inside the Aleph Tav. That means infinity is inside of infinity. Does that make any sense? That's what Colossians and John 1.18 is saying. And again, Colossians 1.15 tells us that one of the us that's being referred to in Genesis 1.26 is the Son, is Christ. All God. Matthew 6.6, 6, pray to your Father who is in the secret place. Remember that? Romans 1.19 because what may be known of God is evident in them, for God has shown it to them. What's the obvious question? Who's them? What did God show them? Which them is them? Romans 1.20, for since the creation of the cosmos, it's not the world, it's the cosmos. K-O-S-M-O-U is the Greek word there. It's kosmo. His invisibility is clearly seen. Think about that for a second. His invisibility is clearly seen. Being understood by the things that are made. We are made things. Human beings are made things. Angels are made things. Animals are made things. Don't think that it's a piece of wood. He's talking about all of, all of the things that he made. And he made us. Even his eternal power is demonstrated by us somehow. And his Godhead, his triunity is somehow revealed by what he has made so that we are without excuse. So he made it so that we know that he is a triune being and that he has done all of these things. And we are without excuse because he has put it into us. We are made things again, as are the animals and the angels. As I am predisposed to do, a seemingly non-contextual question should be introduced here because of Romans 1.20. You're going to think, what is he talking about? How many times do you think that given in a given lecture? More than 20. Okay, more than 50? I won't ask anymore. Here's the question. How long, remember, he is the invisible God. How long has the triune God had been invisible? Here's a, why does God hide Psalm 10.1? Remember that verse? He's invisible. How long has he been invisible? Has he always been invisible? If he's always been invisible, well, then he's invisible. But what if he isn't always invisible? What if he has been visible? When did he become invisible? Now, that's a terrible question because he's outside of time. So I'm using a human perspective. In a human perspective, we can look at the timeline of humanity. When did God become invisible? If he was not always invisible. Was he invisible to the angels? Or did he become invisible to the angels? What event is traceable to the cause of his invisibility? I'm suggesting there is a traceable cause, aren't I? So what traceable cause would you suggest? Will he stay invisible? Let's ask that question. If he became invisible, will he stay invisible? Or will he go back to be invisible? Did he? Will he remove his veil of invisibility? How about that for a theological question, huh? If he will do that, uh-oh, when? Ah, can't say when. He's outside of time. But I'm going to. When will he remove his invisibility? And why will he do it? What is the cause traceable to the removal of the invisibility? What is the cause traceable to the beginning of the invisibility is what I'm asking. Does his invisibility testify of free will? Obviously, God being invisible is not an excuse for man, which of his invisible attributes, they're clearly seen. Is gravity an invisible attribute? If only I had a friend to ask that for, but I don't. Is gravity an invisible attribute? Is gravity evidence then? Is gravity clearly seen? Long answer, gravity, sorry, i got to have some water. Long answer, is, is gravity evidence? Yes. Is gravity clearly seen? Yes. Drop an egg. Is the invisibility of God related to the angelic rebellion? How about that? 
Is it similar to Ezekiel 10.18 where I have the departure of the Shekinah glory from the east gate of the temple standing over the cherubim? When I say the east gate of the temple standing over to the over the cherubim, what am I talking about other than Ezekiel 10.18? Without dispute, certainly I'm talking about Genesis 3.24, the driving out of Adam. Guess what gate he went out of? Well, he went out of the east gate. Genesis 2.8, Ezekiel 10.19. Ezekiel 10.19 is a replication. By that I mean there is a repeating of the process. Also, God departing, Acts 1.9-11, Ezekiel 1.4, into the pillar of cloud. Every time God leaves, I need to know about it. Why does he leave? Is he coming back? Why is he invisible? Will he become visible? What is, the, what is the return of Christ about besides just ending the wicked ones and, and, uh, and saving people? I think uh, all of those things, Acts 1, 9 through 11, Ezekiel 1, 4, uh, they all contribute to the meanings of the driving out of Adam at his east gate. When I say his east gate, God's east gate. As you know, there's an east gate in Jerusalem. It's called the gate of mercy. Also, it's called the king's gate. Obviously, Christ is the king of kings. So it's his gate. Anyway, is the invisibility of God a reverberation traceable to the lie of Satan? That's what I'm asking ultimately with the question. For today, note that the invisible cannot be seen. Pay the man. I mean, how does he do it? How profound. God refers to our seeing. Yeah, he, he does refer to our seeing, but he prefers that our seeing is subordinated to our hearing. The woman saw that the tree of death was good for food. That was bad. She saw it. Her eyes. Genesis 3.6. Whereas hearing is praised, as you know. As everyone knows. I'm really racking them up. Matthew 13.20, John 6.45, Romans 10.17, salvation comes from hearing and hearing by the Word of God. The Word of God, of course, is Christ. Every time you see the Word of God, you have to say, that's Christ, that's Christ, that's Christ, that's Christ. Teach yourself to do that, John 1, 1 through 4. Okay, where was I? Where am I going? Who knows? Romans 1.20, his invisibility is clearly seen, so they are without excuse. What is the easy question, the immediate question? Who are they? How about second easy question, obvious question? What are their excuses? They have no excuse for what? Can we all agree? No. Can we all pretend to agree? Probably not. That those who present excuses to God will be doing so in a judicial procedure, just like uh, Genesis 3. Remember the excuse of the woman and the excuse of Adam, which by both of those are not excuses. They are profound, incredibly complex statements. Adam did not blame the woman. He blamed himself. Eve did not. She accused Satan of, the, of a lie. And the lie had to do with Genesis 3-4, which tells you that's the lie of Satan. Again, Job 1, Job 2. These excuses are going to be presented at the great white throne judgment. Christ on the throne, the judge of all. John 5.22, Revelation 20.11-15. And what do you think, what might be the prevailing defense position or petition before the court? What are they going to say, those who come with excuses? What's their excuse? What do you think it is? Perchance, it could be, perhaps, the accusation that God, Exodus 17, 1-7, is the author, the one who conceived and decreed evil. And if that's true, none will face adversity, Psalm 10.6, or accountability, Psalm 10.13, Genesis 3.4. Could that be their excuse? You created me evil. You can't judge me. That, of course, again, the lie of Satan. Jesus, God, rejects this excuse. He says there is no excuse. This excuse isn't valid. 
on the basis that his goodness is clearly seen, being understood by the things that he made and his divine nature. Again, his goodness, his faithfulness, his loving kindness and grace. Acts 14, 14 through 17. Psalm 36, 5 through 7. How am I doing for time? I've got to hurry. Notice Acts 14, 15, 16. Notice what it says. The living God who made the heaven, the earth, the sea, and all things that are in them. That's the animals, that's the sea creatures, that's us, that's the angelic realm. Here's what it says in Acts 14, 15. That God allowed all nations to walk in their own ways. Now let me repeat that. Acts 14, 15 through 17. God who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and all things that are in them allowed all nations to walk in their own ways. God allowed all to walk in their own ways. Therefore, they have the capacity to do what? That's right, walk in their own way. What's that? I will tell you that Acts 14.16 is seldom raised in the food fight that is Calvinism versus free will. So who is without excuse? Who are these people? Why don't, why, why is there no excuse? There is no excuse because the guilt is on the defendants. The Bible says they don't have this excuse that, that is God decreed evil. They don't have this excuse that they have no free will. Because they have no excuse. The guilt is on the defendants who were allowed to go their own way. Romans 1.21 is where they end up. God did not decree predestined evil. Evil is allowed. Why is evil allowed? You should be able to answer that. You're going to get it from kids all the time. If you can't, you have to wait till I do it for you. Which won't be today. Yeah, okay, moving along to Colossians 1.17. All things consist in Christ Jesus. He is before time and all things are sustained, held by Him. He holds everything. Psalm 95.4. When He's holding everything, what is He doing? Jesus Christ is the holding force. Oh no. That's what the Bible says. That's why this debate is so important. He's the holding force. The Bible declares that God, therefore, is active in his creation. He is holding it by his will. And that that uh, refutes the agnostics and the deism people. What's an agnostic? They believe that you can't know God at all. and that he's, The deists believe that uh, God is not active in his creation. One says you can't know anything about God. It's impossible. The other one says God is, has left the building like Elvis. So that's why you know that the atheists rebel against this gravitational force position. I should be fair, though, and I should point out that the physicists have begun to refer to general relativity theory as a prison that Einstein built. What do they mean by that? They're coming across. They're figuring it out. Einstein insisted that nothing could exceed the speed of light, and that's the prison that he built. And if you're stuck in that prison, you can't ever figure anything out. And they have not been able to figure anything out. String theory is called quackery now. And that's a wonderful debate. Someday we'll get into string theory, but not today. But why, why are we so sure that nothing can exceed the speed of light? And again, they're saying we have something wrong. What if there is something that, is, that can exceed the speed of light? Physicist Kurt Renshaw, you've heard me say him a lot. He published an alternative theory. He called it Newton's Revenge. It's a fantastic reading. Again, it's electromagnetic radiation. <sighs> okay, now we can gravitate, get it, towards Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. Ephesians 1, 3, 14 is consistently cited by the resolute deterministic Calvinists as a wholehearted endorsement by the Bible of their total predisposition or predestination belief. And they are generally certain that their assessment of that is, their estimation is unassailable. Their position is bulletproof because of Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. It is indisputable. And I have come across many intense predeterminists and who will, who will, uh, never, they've never come across with Ephesians 1, 3 through 4 any other way. They've never looked at it in any other way. They think their way is the way. And I've said in the past, usually applied to the Arminian position that salvation is fractionable, thus subject to be lost or stolen constantly. 
But it's my experience that logic and evidence does not prevail in these discussions. They love being wrong, and they will not bend. It doesn't matter how much evidence, how much theology, how much proof in the Bible that I present to them. They're never going to listen to me. They don't care. They're stuck in their place. They're going to be in their club, and no one's going to move them. I've been doing this for 30 years almost. I started in this house 30 years ago. Can you believe that? We have the same crowd size then as we have now. <laughs> I should say, I put a, Lori and I put a couch out for people who might show up today, but they didn't come, so we're going we're to expose them and excommunicate them. That's how we operate in the professional religious. Never mind. Okay, Ephesians 1, 3 through 4 conforms to this category uh, that it is, I can't fool, I can't uh, move anybody. So, with the full awareness that I will not persuade any of the devoted entrenched Calvinists, let us instead examine their supposed invulnerability as to their position on Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. And it goes on besides 3, 1, 3 through 14. It goes into Ephesians 2, Ephesians 3. I think it goes into Ephesians 4, 1. And perhaps I might be able to detect a weakness or a gashing breach sufficient to allow a battleship to go through their position. Well, maybe. Who can say? First, we need to identify the context, right? What is the context of Ephesians 1, 3 through 14? What is it talking about? We need to identify the context. Then we go accumulate the key elements and all of the spiritual complements that are in the Bible of those key elements. In other words, where else in scriptures does Ephesians 1, 3 through 14 arise? Where is it connected? So what is the context? Is it predestination of salvation as they say it is? When I say they, I mean the Calvinistic determinists. Is it predestinational salvation? Yes or no? Where else do we locate this subject? Now obviously Ephesians continues, Ephesians 1 continues well past verse 14. But today we're going to just truncate the, the subject as best we can. So here we go. Okay, I'm going to start. At verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. That's a triune verse. Just as He chose us. Wow! Just as He chose us. He chose us. What's the easy question really fast? I'll say it again in a minute. Who's us? Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that's before time, that we, we should be holy. I have us and I have we. Who's us and who's we? We should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us. Again, who's us here? to adoption as sons of Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, for which he made us accepted in the beloved. The beloved? Who's the beloved? In him we have redemption through, again, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace, which he made to abound towards us in all wisdom and prudence. Obviously, us and we are us and we all the way through. So whoever he's talking about, he's talking about them so far through seven, I'm sorry, four four verses, almost five. Having made us known, having made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself. Oh my gosh, what's the purpose? That in the dispensation of the fullness of times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. In him we also, whose we, obtained an inheritance being predestined according to the purpose of him. What's the purpose? Again, Romans, right? Who works all things according to the counsel of his will. That we who first trusted in Christ should be be to the praise of his glory. Now look at this. It's amazing. Verse 13. In him you, who? We got us and we, and now we have you. You. After you heard, so whoever this you is, they heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, your salvation, in whom also having believed, you were sealed (coughs) with the Holy Spirit of promise. Notice that 
uh, whom also in him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom ye also having believed, you also believed. So who are the also believers? Who is, in, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory? Okay? There we go. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. What is Paul saying here? What are the spiritual blessings? Just as he chose us in him, what did Christ choose us for? Who is the us and what did he choose the us for? Is this reverent, referring to our salvation? They will say that it is. Do you think that it is? If you do, oops. It's not salvation. No. What is the context? The context is the third mystery of the 11 mysteries. He even says mystery. What is the third mystery, Ephesians 3, 3 through 6, 3, 10 through 11? Well, that would be the uniting of the Jews and the Gentiles in this mystery. He chose us and he chose you. Matthew 13, 11. Matthew 25, 1 through 13 to raise just two compliments. All of Matthew 13 can't be overlooked when you're looking at Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. Colossians 1, 26, 27. The mystery that has been hidden from ages, from the generations, has now been revealed to his saints. Now you know who the mystery is. Thank you. I got it. I think I can do it. I got ten minutes. To them, God willed to make known what are the riches and the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles. That's Colossians 1, 26 through 27. I'm going to say to you that that is the same mystery that is being being referenced in Ephesians 1, 3 through 14, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now, notice the language now within the context of the third mystery, just as, the, as he chose us. Again, who is us? I'll give you a clue. Paul's a Jew. Paul says he chose us. Again, Paul's a Jew. In him before the foundation of the cosmos, not the world, the cosmos, the creation. Psalm 104, 5, Job 38, 5. That we, who's the we? Paul's a Jew. Should be holy and without blame before him in love. Notice that that is the Hebrew betrothal ceremony here. That's the marriage of Israel to God at Mount Sinai. Ephesians 5, 31 through 32. Genesis 2, 24. That means I have the abduction of the bride. It's in Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. The wife of YHVH and the, and the bride of Christ. I have two groups. And, I, and of course, the, the wife of YHVH, I, we have a bill of divorcement. He divorced his wife, Jeremiah 3, 6 through 10 on the basis of adultery. That's what God did. So I have this marriage to God at Mount Sinai, and I have a bill of divorcement, and I have the abduction of the bride of Christ. There are two things. And if you, if you commingle the wife of YHVH with the bride of Christ, you will end up in error. And that is what's happened with Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. They have mixed everything together, and that is not correct. That's not what Paul is doing. Having predestined us, who is us? Paul's a Jew to adopt, adopt I'm sorry, I can't say adoption, John 1, 12. John is a Jew as sons by Jesus Christ to himself. So what do we have thus far? We have the Hebrew betrothal ceremony. It's right here, all 12 steps. So if you're going to have a position on Ephesians 1 through 13, 1, uh, 1, 3 through 14. You better know that Hebrew betrothal ceremony. Upside down, backwards, inside out. If you don't know it, shut up. We have the foundations of the universe. The laws of God. This is before time. Before these, someone was chosen. Before the foundations of the, of the universe were chosen. Or, I'm sorry, before the, before the, the laws and time of the foundations of the earth universe, before those, someone was chosen. And that's the us and the we. They were chosen. To do what? And they were chosen that, that they should be holy. Bef- were they holy? How about Matthew 12, 31 through 37? Doesn't look like they were holy there. How about Matthew 23? Doesn't look like they're holy there. They were chosen to be holy, set apart. They were a nation set apart. That's the us. That's the we. 
Paul's a Jew. We, Israel, were set apart. The wife was set apart. The wife was married. And we were married that we should be holy. And we were not holy. And we had a bill of divorcement. Another rut row here. The national sin of Israel, the rejection of Jesus Christ on the basis that he is Satan. That's the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Who committed that? Was it the Gentiles? No, it was not. It was the Israel that did that. The nation of Israel. By the religious rulers of the nation. That's who did that. They rejected Christ. And much of the people, and still that case today. And that also is adding to the context of Ephesians 1, 3-14. through Already, I didn't get a small breach that a battleship could go through. I got aircraft carriers lined up five abreast going through that by the thousands. That's a big hole. I got a half dozen nuclear aircraft carriers Again, side by side in a parade going through that hole. And they're preparing to sail through. In Lecture 192, February 19, 2023, page 18, paragraph 1, I advance the necessity to be knowledgeable to all of the primary facets of the Simeon prophecy if you're going to have an opinion on Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. You better know your Hebrew betrothal ceremony. You better understand the bill of divorcement with regard to the wife of Israel. You better know who the bride of Christ is. Matthew 25, you better have the abduction of the bride figured out. And now you need to know the Simeon prophecy in order to get anything right about Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. Seeing that all of that, the Simeon, all of that is profoundly, thoroughly applicatory to Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. And specifically, if not, if not to the entirety of the book of Ephesians. I still await the hyper-predestinated position paper that addresses the Simeon prophecy as it relates to Ephesians 1, 3 through 4, or the Hebrew betrothal ceremony. I haven't seen it. I suspect that I have many more years of breath holding. Fundamentally, the Simeon prophecy reveals the plan of redemption for the wife. That's what it does. This is Hosea as well, the book of Hosea. The adulterous wife of YHVH. Israel is symbolized as a divorced wife. The church is symbolized as a, as a virgin bride. Israel will be provoked to jealousy, it says in Romans 11, 19 through 21. Deuteronomy 32, 21. God will hide from Israel. Uh-oh. Is that invisibility? He will hide from Israel. Why? What does it mean that when he says he will hide himself? Why does God and how does God hide? How big is he? He's pretty big. So how does, how does he hide? I think we'd see something. But Israel will be restored. Israel's blindness, their self-imposed banishment is not final. Romans 11, 11 through, uh, 11, 11 through 11, 26. All of Israel will be saved, Romans 11.26. And that's often misunderstood. All of Israel will be... That, that is dual covenantism by some pastors out there. They say, if you're a Jew, you're saved automatically. Not true. Because that 11.26 is talking about the nation of Israel. It's a nation of Israel context. It is not individualized salvation. It's the nation of the Israel that rejected the Messiahship of Jesus Christ. Not individuals. Many individual Jews were saved there. The whole apostles, right? And everyone they touched. By word. The word, the God-man, the, in the flesh, Matthew 12, uh, 31 through 36. They rejected the God-man. They rejected the word. Matthew 12, 31 through 36. Romans 11, 25 through 32, Paul says the church of Romans. This is what he says to the church of Romans. For I do not desire, brethren, that you... Church of Romans, that you should be ignorant of this mystery. Don't be ignorant of the mystery that is outlined in Ephesians 1, 3 through 14 and Romans 11. Don't be ignorant of that. Now, I've got a slew of easy questions that come flying out and slap you upside the head. Who is you? Who is ignorant? What is the mystery? Again, I keep repeating these things. What is this mystery? That you, I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery. Who am I saying is ignorant of this mystery? Almost everybody who reads Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. Especially those who twist it to fit their agenda. I am positive that it is the exact mystery of Ephesians 1, 9 through 10 that he's talking about in Romans 11, 25 through 32. 
having made, having made known to us the mystery of His will, according to His good pleasure. Is predestinational salvation a good pleasure? Obviously not. That in the dispensation of the fullness of times, He might gather in one all things in Christ and were things. So what is the dispensational the dispensation of the fullness in times. Who are those who have a dispensation? Who are the us? Who are the one gathered? Who are the two that are gathered into one? Those are the questions that need to be asked and need to be answered in Ephesians 1, 3 through 4. Again, in Ephesians 2 and Ephesians 3. Again, Israel's rejection is not final. I can't say that enough. Romans 11, 11 through 36. Their remarriage is promised. God promised to remarry them. God's blessings for Israel are going to be restored. The blindness of Israel will be healed. Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. God will make a new covenant with Israel. Behold, the days come, says Jehovah, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel. The previous marriage contract was broken. Jeremiah 31, 32. The husband, God himself, was abandoned by Israel, the wife who committed adultery. Again, this is symbolism, not of individuals. Of the nation, the national, not the individual. That's what it's talking about in Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. It is a perversion to assign it to individual. You're absolutely wrong to do so and you miss, you, you miss the whole meaning of the mystery. Romans, Paul describes Romans 11, 16 through, uh, through 24 as the olive tree. I hope you're all familiar with the olive tree. If you're not, you should read Romans 11, 16 through 24 before you have an opinion on Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. There is the fatness of the olive tree, the roots and the branches. And the root is holy. That's your first clue to know what, who the root is. Some branches have been broken off and others from a wild olive tree have been grafted in. And these are told not to boast against the branches Branches that were not broken off, but to remember that you do not support the root, but the root supports you. So somebody comes along and tries to boast about their salvation and mock the branches that were not broken off. And and Paul says to them, remember that you do not support the root, but the root supports you. Who is you? Obviously, it's the church. It's the Gentile. Obviously. And the we and the us. That's Paul saying, that's me. That's John saying, that's us. That's the nation of Israel. That's what Ephesians 1, 3 through 14 is doing. Is it individualized salvation? It is not. It's talking about this great mystery of the olive tree. That's what it's doing. Paul answers this in Ephesians 1. He answers it again in Ephesians 2. He answers it in Ephesians 3. Is the context ever individualized salvation? Individualized predestination? Is it ever that? It's never that. And he says clearly, do not be ignorant of this mystery. And that's the problem. I've got a bunch of people out there proclaiming that it is something it is not and they are ignorant of the mystery. They don't even have half of the pieces or any of the pieces. They're just screaming at the top of their lungs. That you can never be saved because you have not been picking, picked by God. Uh, Ephesians 1, 12 through 13 lines up beautifully with Romans 11, 11 through 32. We have the, we have the repeat in 11, uh, Romans 11, 11 through 32. The we, the, the us, the you. Uh, it's, that's the context. Why do the hyper predestinational people not correct I'm sorry, not connect Romans 11 with Ephesians 1. Why don't they go get it? And they can get it, they get it easy. It's not hard. It's obvious. Why don't they do it? Because it destroys their invulnerability. That's why. I will ask this simple question to you, Mr. Supper. People do ask me, is his last name Supper? Maybe. If it's not, it should be. It should be Supper Supper. How many times have you heard Romans 11 and the mystery of the bride and the wife and the united olive tree mystery brought up when you're talking about predestinational salvation? Never. 
Never. Just don't do it. Why not? There's a reason why not. And next time we're together on the 2nd of April, I will go over the reason and we'll keep fighting this fight. Okay. Oh, I should say this really fast. I get I get told this gentle su- suggestion. It's also time for you to start making remote altar calls. Remember that from Mark? And I, and I, I got to tell you, uh, I, as I said before, I pay attention to how many people in Israel listen to this broadcast. And it's not very many. But it's some. And I want those Jews to know that the, the, Jesus Christ is the Jewish king. He's the king of kings. He's going to take you. He's going to remarry you. He's going to do it all and put it all back together again. He is really who you are waiting for. And you won't see it because you, you won't see it. Now, that's not true individually, is it? I know many Messianic Jews out there fighting the fight. But if you're not a Messianic Jew, you're, on, you're in the olive tree. And if you're in the olive tree, don't boast about the branches that have not been broken off. Do not be ignorant of, that, of this mystery. Know that you've been given this fantastic life that you didn't deserve, you can't earn. It's amazing. So that's my altar call system. It might be terrible, but it's all I got.